Hello there, and welcome to Sustainable Finance Week for Guernsey Green Finance, um, a, a week of webinars and podcasts looking at the uh, role of private capital financing sustainability in the post-COVID era. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Sabine Doberley, who has been a stalwart of sustainable finance for many years now. Uh, she's the chief executive of the Swiss Sustainable Finance Institute. Um, she's, I've always found in the years that I've known her, she's an absolute, uh, you know, amazing for uh, incredible insight into the latest developments. And so it's a real pleasure to, uh, to have her here today to, to join me in conversation and to give us the view from uh, Central Europe, the view from Switzerland, the, the heart of Europe and at the heart of private wealth and private capital. So. Welcome, Sabine. How are you? Thank you, Andy. I'm just fine. And I'm very happy to be part of this uh, podcast today and give you some insights on how we in Switzerland see the world develop around sustainable finance in the context of COVID-19. Absolutely. Thank you ever so much. I mean, there's, there's so much to cover. We'll, you know, we probably won't be able to cover all of it in, in just the one podcast today. But we've seen the narrative about financing sustainability develop over recent years and particularly give it a huge, quite a big momentum uh, since COP21 when the, and then the United Nations, the SDGs. And last year, 2019, the age of you know, the year of Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion. And then we had our very own Prince Charles in uh, Davos in January. It all seems you know, yeah, quite a, a long time ago now, but I thought it would be useful just to maybe start off the conversation by taking a step back and just casting our minds back a few months to pre-COVID and just ask you to introduce the session of what were the three biggest themes, issues you saw um, coming into, you know, 2020 in terms of sustainable finance? Well, if I do this from the perspective of Swiss sustainable finance, which is the Swiss Association Promoting Sustainability in Our Financial Centre. And actually, we're not just uh, an asset managers association. We have a rather broad setup, also having asset owners on board, service providers, universities, and even the public sector. So for us, uh, one key thing is seeing how the market develops. And we've actually just published our latest market study last Monday, the market study on sustainable investments in Switzerland. And again, compared to the previous year, we saw a double-digit growth of plus 62% of wow. Swiss assets now managed sustainably, managed with one or other sustainable uh, finance approaches. And we now stand at 1.2 trillion Swiss francs of assets managed with sustainability approaches. That's roughly one third of all the assets managed in Switzerland, which is quite uh, an impressive trend, I would say, although you, of course, have to look into it a bit deeper and see what the exact uh, developments are. So looking at this market development for us is key and seeing that the topic is really taken up by institutional clients more and more. A second topic that I think is key is the role of finance when it comes to climate change. And we're currently preparing a report on financing instruments for a low-carbon economy that will come out just after summer, where we also try to demonstrate that there are so many ways how the finance industry can contribute to this path, not just through investments, but also other financing instruments. And actually, this week, uh, the Swiss Parliament is discussing our uh, climate legislation, the CO2 law, 
and uh, it will it remains to be seen how they expand new requirements for the finance industry as well another important aspect is i would say the so-called mainstreaming we aim that all assets managed in Switzerland take some sustainability criteria into account. And to achieve this, we cooperated with the Swiss Funds and Asset Management Associations, Pharma, on clear recommendations for sustainable asset management. This cooperation, I think, is new in that it brings together a traditional finance association and us, the sustainability specialists, and uh, the recommendations will be published by mid-year will be a clear call to the Swiss asset management industry to broadly integrate such aspects. So these are just a few insights onto activities that are on our desks just now. Well, that's impressive stuff. And it's really interesting research that and I point people to go and look at that study and look the one coming later this later this year. I mean, and, and interesting and impressive impressive numbers there to be. Um, we did a market research study here in Guernsey. We we discovered that seventy five percent of funds were managed or sponsored or administered by firms adopting PRI, which is a different measure to what um, to what you're talking about in terms of the sustainability of the assets. Um, but it's good to see. Uh, investment communities moving forward and, and um, sort of really setting these targets and these goals to invest in a sustainable future. Um, now, that's very interesting coming into the crisis, but now I'm sort of going to take us through to, you know, post-COVID a little bit, as it were. Um, I mean, I went through this sort of five stages of grief, you know, with regards to with the, with the, the economic impact about the sustainability and the, the impact on it. And I watched commentators sort of, you know, the immediate response that this was all going to change and then the, the changing response to maybe it won't. And But then similarly, I've seen um, the Energy Transition Commission, you know, give us some quite clear warnings um, saying that the, the crisis has clearly demonstrated the unpreparedness of, of the global community for a, a systemic crisis like this, particularly in terms of climate change. Um, and they've made the point that if we um, invest in high carbon activities without any, you know, with, without, or investing without any climate conditionality in the hope that the, the, the economic, in the hope to get the economy going again, and we'd only um, more poorly prepare ourselves for systemic crises going forward. And so the, the point they were making is that, is that recovery packages should have or should be contributing to a building a more healthy, more sustainable world this time around. So, I mean, before we move on then in terms of, you know, you know is, is that the same sentiment that you're seeing in Switzerland? The, the people looking for the need to in, ensure that the recovery itself is, is completely aligned with... Um, uh, with, with the net carbon zero future. Is, is that widespread in Switzerland presently? Well, I would say it's a mixed picture. I mean, generally, Switzerland has had a very liberal uh, tradition. And in this crisis, I think the first focus was on unbureaucratic and very fast help for SMEs, but also for larger corporations. I think Switzerland was probably the fastest in establishing uh, facilities, providing liquidities to business in need. In a joint action, by the way, between the government and Swiss banks. And the main objective of this first initiative was to save jobs and avoid bankruptcies. So the focus was clearly on um, avoiding economic harm, saving jobs, so more the social aspects. 
Um, although we cannot judge the long-term effects, I think the short-term results were definitely positive and it helped uh, save a lot of the smaller businesses, at least up until now. Yet when it comes now to linking government aid to climate goals, I would say the picture is mixed. Of course, we have in the parliament discussions that such help should be linked to criteria. For example, when it comes to uh, supporting Swiss airlines, uh, it's a package that is still under discussion. In a first uh, suggestion, there were, well, I would say vague links to climate goals, but really not very concrete ones. But uh, the package hasn't been concluded and we'll see which direction it, it will take. But probably respective conditions will stay minimal. So not very strong links to climate change, but maybe it's also linked to the fact that we in Switzerland are not very strong in the industries that have a very high carbon footprint. I mean, we're not talking about uh, buying back uh, shares from oil companies. It's not the kind of challenges we face right now. But, I mean, but do you, broad, do you have uh, broader concerns about the, maybe the pressure to relax the commitments um, in terms of sentiment, that is, because you know you're absolutely right in a, in terms of where the Swiss Swiss industry is. But if you look at the UK with the, with the furlough scheme coming to an end, the this, this, this sheer volume of worklessness that might be uh, you know, we might be facing that there might be a pressure uh, to be more immediate. Uh, do you have concerns about that? Well, I definitely do have concerns that it, it shouldn't be that we just sort of invest in the same kind of old economy that we have. Uh, had now for, for decades. So clearly there should be criteria when it comes to the more forward-looking and more elaborate packages. I personally think they should cl be clearly linked to goals uh, related to climate change. And by the way, in Switzerland, the Swiss government has made a clear commitment to net zero carbon emissions by, emissions by 2050. So going forward, it is important that they implement this also when supporting certain industries, let's say uh, the airlines or other uh, high, high emission sectors. And I think a lot of Swiss parliamentarians also see it this way. We'll see which direction it takes also in the course of this week in our parliamentary uh, discussions around the CO2 law. Uh, and then that CO2 legislation, maybe if you, for our listeners, uh, could you maybe expand a little bit about what that was that discussion this week? Um, well, it's, it's a, a legislation that has been discussed already uh, for, for quite some, um, some rounds in our parliament. Right now, it's really about aligning, uh, aligning it to latest developments. And I mentioned it. Uh, two paragraphs will most likely be integrated uh, relating to finance, the role of finance, uh, and making it mandatory for finance to take climate uh, risks into account in all aspects of business. Another thing that is still on the debate is uh, a flight tax, and we'll see which direction it takes. It might be reconsidered in the light of the current crisis of air travel but there is a suggestion to actually tax flights that start from Switzerland or land in Switzerland. Okay. I mean, it's very interesting in all of this. I mean, um, actually, it's quite interesting that you see the finance sector and, and, and the industry itself being maybe f further ahead than governments in some respect. You talk about the climate risk. We've seen that basically come through the regulatory community with TCFD has very much often been further ahead than the national governments. But uh, 
leave that on the water's edge for now. Sorry, Pookie. You- uh, yeah, actually, it's interesting. I think if we look at the sustainable finance development in Switzerland, most of it was purely driven by the market. We haven't had any legislation in place so far. Everything that we see happening now is voluntary. Yes, I see, still see room for improvement, especially also when it comes to quality or impact. But so far in Switzerland, the development we saw was not driven by our government, but more by client demand and even by the financial service providers. Hmm. I mean, that's, that, that point we'll touch on again in terms of client demand. It's very interesting in the conversations I've been having preparing this week is that quite often, you know, it's very much the, the investors, the owners of private wealth who have been at the forefront of demanding change. But in terms of talking about demanding change, um, coming back to uh, one of the early papers that I read um, during in the first few weeks of the crisis was from McKinsey talking about the need to align and learn lessons from the crisis and align our actions um, or to the response um, and what, what we could learn uh, for climate, our actions with respect to climate change going forward. So in terms of from the crisis itself and our, our, our response to it, do you think, what's your view on the lessons that we can learn for sustainability within that? You know, um, what's your general view on that? Or is, it, or is it too early to say? No, actually we did some, we, we thought about that and also published a comment in our market study. I clearly think that there are lessons that we can take from, from the COVID-19 crisis for other grand challenges that we see. One of them first the pace and severity of a crisis clearly depends on the human reaction to it. I mean, we saw it with COVID-19, the international connectedness, connectedness has fueled the spread. At the same time, the fact that we uh, actually kept social distancing measures has been an effective measure to reduce infection rates in many countries. I think the same is true for most other grand challenges, be it climate change or other ecological or social parts. We are part of a problem, but we can also be part of the solution. Now, what we saw with COVID-19 is that scientific knowledge about an emerging crisis is often not enough to trigger an immediate response. I mean, already at the very early stage, knowledge was there that we should change our behavior, but in Europe and and in the Americas, uh, the actual reactions started relatively late. I think climate change poses a similar dilemma. It took long for us to start reacting to it, but now that we have seen the clear effects of it, we also saw that uh, governments are actually starting to implement action. I think generally we see that time is of essence. Radical measures are an effective solutions as long as they are implemented quickly. Now, in many ecological problems, we know that that, uh, exceeding the planetary boundaries, we we are already exceeding them in many aspects. And a lot of these ecological challenges have to be addressed timely, also to avoid reaching tipping points. And I think climate change is is the the prime example here. And after these tipping points, remedy is, is much more difficult. So really, we should speed up our climate action, that's for sure. And I think what we can also see is that economic effects are key drivers. It was, after all, the fear of the economic depression that motivated governments around the world to ease the lockdown as fast as reasonable and possible. And in the case of other challenges, such as climate change, we see that the real 
change comes when such solutions are actually economically viable. So where renewable energy capacity or renewable energy installation is below grid parity, there the development all over sudden speeds up. And I think the fact that we have carbon taxes in place definitely helps to carry such industries through this crisis. And uh, I think it's also a call for more um, more activities on the pricing level and just making sure we, we really integrate externalities. Mm. That would definitely speed up action in many environmental uh, challenges. You make some good points there. I mean, that, that, that point you made about the, um, the, the fear of depression motivating governments to move fast was quite a salient one. I mean, I think it's very much demonstrated the different degrees of resilience uh, of different areas of, of the world with respect to this. We've seen the need to maybe build back with, with a greater resilience of the whole system. Um, it sort of you know, proved it, almost like tested it to destruction this time around. But we'll come back to that in a sec. But, but again, in terms of... Um, uh, the, the, the relevance of all of this, I think, to, to, to the topic of the day, that the private capital, which is the, 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 the theme of Sustainable Finance Week. Um, there was a third question that I alluded to uh, that was in that paper. It was almost like a Kennedy-esque type question, which was, um, you know, what steps could companies and individuals do to, um, uh, to, to, with their immediate pandemic responses to improve sustainability action. Um, I'm not going to suggest we discuss that, but it'd be very relevant, I think, is to think what what steps do you think investors and institutions themselves could take themselves to align their their interests and their actions with um, their, or their response to the pandemic with sustainability? Well, for me, what we saw with the pandemic clearly makes, uh, um, makes clear that investors should integrate ESG factors into all their investment decisions. And it's now definitely also shifting to the social side of things when maybe in the past year or so, the environmental side has been much more in the focus. What we saw is some interesting action on the engagement level. We saw investors engaging with companies about maybe their dividend policy, about the way they deal with their workforces. And such investors definitely took on a long-term view. And their primary goal was to, to carry these companies through the crisis. Um, one thing that I also see as important is offering specific products with a high impact. We saw some innovative solutions in the market here, uh, some COVID-19 bonds, for example, but also now the impact investing community that is trying to, to put packages together to protect uh, small and medium companies in emerging market countries and in developing countries. Here, I also see an important role for investors. But for me, the crisis just also really makes clear that investors have to switch to this long-term view and engage with companies about uh, a long-term viable strategy, taking all the environmental and social aspects and the respecting resulting risks into account. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. But, I mean, Sabine, you, you made that point about the, um, the, the need to incorporate ESG. That's quite an interesting um, perspective. I think, for me personally, there's obviously a bit of conflation of the issues. Is ESG green? Is, is green sustainable? You know, and, and the, sort of the wraparound of they're all subjects on, on a similar page. Um, but, you know, in fact, I also point um, to some research about the, 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 the value of ESG that um, Ben Caldicott, uh, uh, who was speaking on the 
on the on the first webinar um, has just recently published about that the, the macro level, the ESG factors at the micro level can signal better macroeconomic performance. But in terms of the ESG, and there's, re, there's always been talk of it throughout pre-crisis and post-crisis about how that can be a signaler of better returns. You know, at the, at the, at the firm-wide level, um, and you know, there's been much research that's sort of demonstrated um, greater returns from ESG through the crisis as well as previous um, for many different institutions. Its return at the end of the day is what investors demand, and I'm going to sort of segue slightly here that you know, what the conversations that we've had and um, Sir Roger Gifford, you know, well, is always making the point about the, the, the green finance is about um, you know saving the human race over the planet and also producing a commercial return. Do you see in the current uh, crisis, has, has any of this had any impact on investor demand or client demand for, for green finance at this present moment? Um, maybe if I may start with the more broader sustainable finance products, you mentioned it already. A lot of studies actually demonstrated that they carried through the crisis with less volatility. They actually ended up with a better performance and we saw a lot less outflows from sustainable funds as well. Uh, if I say sustainable, I mean funds taking ESG factors into account. So clearly there, again, I'm, I'm convinced that this will even increase demand for, for such assets that, that just generally take such factors into account. When it comes to specifically green topics, and maybe we speak more of thematic investing here, I definitely see some challenges as well. I mean, generally, when we talk about uh, green funds, a lot of them have high shares in renewable energy and energy efficiency topics. We all know electricity consumption went down considerably and uh, it might challenge some of the renewable energy projects that were underway. We know of examples where the projects were stopped and uh, investments are halted. So, I think on this end, there are indeed some challenges for investors ahead. Yet, if you look at it in more detail, still a lot of these projects are um, economically attractive, can, are still competitive. And one reason for this is also that in many economies, we already have a carbon, uh, carbon tax in place, a carbon tax that actually helps even in this phase of um, of reduced energy consumption to still keep some of these projects attractive. And I think what also comes into play here is government policy. We, we definitely need clear signals from governments that they want to stick to their, to their overall strategies and don't deviate from it. And this, this brings us back to the recovery packages, of course, that should be linked to such criteria. So for green investors, I would say they need a bit of a longer longer-term view, and uh, probably some patience in some aspects. Hmm. I mean, that's an interesting point, I mean, because you, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. You know, at the end of the day, uh, people are investing for preservation of capital and to make a return. You know, unless we throw the capitalist system out with the, with the bathwater, as it were, that, that's still going to be uh, a, a key issue for, for, for what I call owners of, of private wealth and private capital going forward. Um, I mean, we did some research in Guernsey ourselves last year, talking about family offices investing in sustainable uh, finance products. 51% said that they were looking to increase their, and this is particularly green, increase their exposure to the asset class, which meant that 49% were, were not considering it, despite all of the rhetoric and the, you know, the, the jamboree of 2019 with you know, Greta et al. 
Um, but the point was, was they said, well, actually, fundamentally, at the end of the day, for us, it's still about the need to, to generate return. Um, do you see that, trying to reconcile that in a post-COVID world um, uh, be, being difficult? I mean, you know, that reconciling that return with the desire to invest sustainability, is there, is there a conflict there? I don't really see it as a conflict because, frankly, thematic investing is always a satellite you add it to your portfolio. And we clearly saw that for broad ESG investing, it was worth it. Those investors were better off during this crisis. So that will definitely shift more capital into ESG solutions. When it comes to thematic investing, I think those investors are used to longer cycles. And I'm pretty convinced that if you look at it across the whole whole economic cycle, uh, maybe the COVID-19 effect will be a small dip, but it will be a dip in longer in a longer uh, structural trend that I don't see halted through the crisis. Hmm. Well, fair point. And then you, you've touched on that long-term view uh, in terms of investment horizons of owners of private wealth. So that's taking the two. Now, I'm going to come on to uh, this. We've seen the, the hashtag build back better sort of you know, campaign going on. But in terms of a policy response as opposed to, you know, say, a, 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 a a sector response. Uh, there was a paper by um, um, Stern Stiglitz et al., the, one of the Oxford Smith Institute, talking about they did a survey of the various different finance ministries and, and central banks, um, talking about what was going to be necessary to ensure the recovery still was aligned with um, uh, climate change mitigation. And they basically said that, you know, um, it, leaving it to the private sector would not be enough. You actually needed to have um, a clear uh, public coordinated response to the agenda. And we've seen the, you know, the European Union uh, come out with its green recovery package just last week. Uh, and, and the UK has had made similar voices, in fact, in terms of their, um, their, 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 uh, their statements when they, um, they postponed COP26 with the, the Italians. Given this huge, huge sort of little conversation about public money and the, and, and the fiscal response to the crisis, how significant do you think private capital is going to be Within that, how big a role can private capital play, given the scale of public money involved? Well, I clearly think private capital is pivotal when we want to make this change happen. Yes, we need government support and we definitely need the right kind of frameworks. We need the right kind of pricing signals from governance and we need DFIs, multilateral development banks, also stepping in and taking out some risk. To, for private uh, investors to join, but we can't do it without private investors. And it is our main belief that really all financial decisions should take a longer term view, should take ESG factors into account, and in doing so, contribute to an economy of the future that will still provide returns at all. So definitely private investors need to step in but they need the government's um, frameworks in place and they need some security. And we saw great examples of um, uh, multilateral development banks that really take clear stance in making climate a more, uh, form, a more formal element of their policy. The EIB for me is a very good example that said we are no longer financing the brown economy. We're clearly focusing on climate now. I mean, these are the kind of signals that also leave their trace in the private uh, market. And they also help carry it through the crisis. 
But I guess as with the SDGs, it's much debated with the SDGs as well. It can never be only governments that make this change. We talk of a change of our whole economic system, of all the sectors, and we need all the investors in these sectors that actually contribute to the change. So it can't just be one or the other. We're talking change has been um, in terms of the in terms of the crisis, it's sort of been a spur for change. Uh, we've we've discovered um, that actually, in terms of our financial services sector, the the digitalisation of a lot of the AML has been accelerated. And do you see any sort of uh, changes in the digital and the fintech sphere? Well, I think. It's really interesting to see that the COVID-19 crisis has been a bit of a game changer in terms of customer behavior. I mean, all the digital solutions are now turning into the new normal. We see it in business life with our conferences and everything. We saw that crowdfunding platforms played an incredibly important role when saving SMEs from bankruptcy. Um, And often very locally, the local clients actually supported their companies for them not to to go bankrupt. We see that digital payment has moved up on on the use and uh, also the guarantee of smooth remittances. Uh, Remittances channels is much more important now, especially against the backdrop of reduced flows as well. So generally, I think fintech has played a key role in many aspects of problems we saw arising and I'm convinced it will play an even bigger role also especially for sustainable finance. One of the key challenges in sustainable finance is getting the right kind of data, aggregating it and then providing transparency on certain investments and here we see large opportunities in using using artificial intelligence, big data analysis to aggregate such data, but then also blockchain solutions to bring this information um, to clients uh, in a reliable way. So clearly, I think sustainable fintech will probably profit from all the challenges our economy is facing right now. Okay. Yeah, similar experience over here, you know, in terms of it's things that you thought have been taking a long time to happen suddenly you know, occur just like that in terms of crisis. Um, but talking about catalysts for change and such, one of our, um, our the conversations I've been having preparing for this week is talking about the various standards and the taxonomies. And it seems like you turn around and there's another standard, another framework, another taxonomy. And we did um, this survey ourselves of the market, like I said earlier, um, in, in, in Guernsey way, you know, do you know your SDGs from your ASG sort of thing? And, and there's a, a lot of confusion out there. One concern that had been highlighted to us uh, in conversation was um, as a force for good, taxonomies and rules and frameworks can aid transparency and data collection. Um, but as a force for, you know, you, go, you went down the wrong road. The, the confusion and the costs that were being brought in there is not relevant to, you know, private capital. What's what's your view of this? I mean, do you, you know, in terms of from Switzerland, in terms of international standards and taxonomies, how do you, what would be your preferred route of development here? I think definitely taxonomies can be helpful in bringing clarity to investors in creating a basis for investment decisions. But investors think globally. We don't just invest in European countries or just in the US. So really, for them, it's crucial to have aligned taxonomies. And uh, the EU set up the International Platform on Sustainable Finance, which actually joined it this year. 
I think this is a key platform to really make sure that we we manage to align globally our views of what is sustainable and what is not. Uh, we are also a member of FC4S, Financial Centers for Sustainability. They work towards alignment and bring in the views of their members that are spread across the world. So clearly for me, aligning taxonomies is key. Otherwise, it just creates too much confusion for investors and uh, too much burden as well, I should say. In Switzerland, we don't have a separate taxonomy. We, of course, closely watch what's happening in the EU and Swiss asset managers will have to publish data based on EU legislation, as many of them have European clients or have activities there. So clearly for this, for us, this is an important development that we, we monitor closely. I think both Switzerland and Guernsey are very similar in that regard. I mean, it's, it's our policy to align ourselves with the international standards and taxonomies. On, on the international agenda, looking forward to next year now it is actually, obviously with the pushing back of um, COP26 to 2021, uh, Mark Kearney's big push had been, his big theme had been uh, the role for private capital within that. Have you, what are your hopes? Do you have any personal hopes, that is, for COP26 and the role of private in the area of private capital and sustainability? Well, frankly, in the past year or two, we've seen a lot of initiatives from the private sector regarding climate. I mean, we have the Climate Action 100 Plus, for example, that is doing engagement with, with uh, large emitters. We have the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance that is really aiming to reduce the footprint of their portfolios to zero by 2050. I think these are already important developments that we see as private initiatives. But of course, they need to be broadened and they need to become even more effective. And here, a lot of things have to play together. On the one hand, it is about gaining more investors on board, maybe even make it some of it mandatory, transparency on your engagement activities, to name just one, um, or on, on the level of your portfolio. So I think more transparency needs to be uh, play a key role in getting more investors on board of such initiatives and therewith giving them more traction. So in a way, I think... A lot of the ideas are here, are already on the table, but we need to spread them out to the full market. Mm, good point. Yeah, I agree. Now, it's been a fascinating conversation, Sabine. I'm going to conclude with one final question now. Um, maybe one of the silver linings of, of, of the crisis has been the drop in carbon emissions. Uh, I think the IEA estimate that they dropped by 8% potentially in 2020. That's you know one good year, but there's a saying in English, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Then to meet the, you know, the IPCC targets, we're going to need to repeat that exercise every year up to 2030, which is puts you into perspective the scale of, of the challenge and the task at hand. I'd like to conclude by asking you, you know, how confident are you that we can get on the right track post-COVID in fighting climate change um, you know, in, in, in the post-C19 era? Well, I would say I have two souls in my heart. On the one hand, I'm a natural scientist from my background, and that sometimes leaves me very skeptical that we will make it. But then on the other hand, I see signs that we can make it. And one of them is what we see right now is an enormous disruption. And disruptions always offer the opportunity for real change. 
we can build back better. We need the kind, the right kind of pressures in different points now. But I think disruptions are always also opportunities. And at the same time, something we need to keep in mind. A lot of technologies have been developed now to become more efficient and they will never be implemented linear in a linear way. We will see, um, um, we will see, of course, uh, increasing uptake of such technologies that brings it also to exponential developments. If we think it linear, we won't make it, but we will see exponential change in very important areas. And that leaves me with some hope that we will manage to change. On that note, Sabine, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, it's been an, an incredible 30, 40 minutes conversation with you. Uh, as I suspected, you provided some incredible insights. And it's, you know, it's a real honor that you've uh, done us the courtesy of, of sharing your views on some of these subjects uh, for Sustainable Finance Week here in Guernsey. Um, always great. Uh, to speak and meet with you. I'm looking forward to engaging with you over the summer. And um, the best of luck um, for, you know, all, uh, for Switzerland you know, in the post-COVID era. And I shall look forward to seeing you again soon. So thank you ever so much. Thank you, Andy, so much for inviting me to this conversation. It was a great pleasure to talk to you as ever. You're a star as ever. Thank you, Sabine. Thank you.